welcome. Um, we're off uh, in 2023. We're a little bit slow. We've had a little Christmas break and New Year's break, but we're continuing with the anatomy of the leg. This year we'll finish off the lower limb and then move on to the thorax. So a little behind schedule, but nevertheless we'll include everything that we do want to include. Um, this is ALL 6 for those, the anatomy of the lower limb, 6 for those who are keeping count. And uh, we're going to talk about the leg. Of course, we think of the leg as that area of the lower limb, really, below the knee. And please use this in your vivas. It's important in understanding this anatomy for a below-knee amputation in particular, and I'll go through that later in this podcast from its anatomical and surgical standpoint, and where the dimensions and the treatment in that case of the posteriorly based vascularized flap will stand you in very good stead for primary healing if you pay attention to the anatomy. Anatomy, we remember, is a, a practical sport. It has clinical context. Now, we think of the anterior or the extensor aspect of the leg and the flexor aspect, the calf, and then also separately of the peroneal compartment. We notice also the differences in the flexor retinaculum between the upper and the lower limb and the separate extensor retinaculae of the lower limb and the peroneal retinaculum. So we firstly think of the extensor or the anterior compartment of the leg and it has the extensor muscles in it, the tibialis anterior, the extensor digitorum and the extensor hallucis longus. And we also include a kind of anteriorly migrated lateral muscle, the peroneus, or nowadays we call it the fibularis, they're interchangeable, longus. So I should point out for those interested that peroneus, of course, not to be confused with peroneal, is Greek, and it's Greek for fibula. So that's where it comes from. So when we look at our own anterior leg, um, it's all subcutaneous tibia, and then laterally you feel the extensor compartment musculature if you dorsiflex your um, ankle. Indeed, when you form uh, or perform a baloney amputation, you can put your finger under this bulk of muscle and divide it, and your finger is on top of the interosseous membrane. It's a bloodless plane. Uh, with the anterior tibial, uh, anterior tibial vessels and the compartment nerve, which is the deep fibula or deep perineal nerve, lying just underneath on top of the interosseous membrane, the deep fibula nerve typically being lateral to the ar uh, artery, the anterior tibial vessels. And we can replace, as I've said, these terms fibula and perineal. I may use one or the other but they both mean the same thing. The cutaneous nerve supply, like the upper limb forearm, is kind of overlapping, and it, 
It includes on the medial side of the leg the saphenous nerve, which is part of the femoral nerve, and laterally the lateral cutaneous nerve of the calf, or as we've already met really, the lateral sural cutaneous nerve, or the perineal branch of the sural nerve. And the common fibular nerve here divides, as we know, into a deep and a superficial component. So there's like a kind of security blanket here of the lateral calf innervated by the lateral cutaneous branch, which comes from the common fibula, and a superficial fibula, which tends to have more cutaneous supply on the extensor aspect of the foot. Uh, so it's not an overly sensitive area, but there's some overlap there. Now, this area is also the anatomy, of course, of the short saphenous vein and its deep perforators, the three tendon attachments high up medially, as we mentioned on the medial aspect of the subcutaneous tibia. I've mentioned those before, the sartorius, the gracilis and semitendinosus from before backwards, which I've already mentioned. And one can also look at a cross-section of the leg here to see the extensor compartment bounded medially by the tibia and the anterior intermuscular septum. And that's, of course of tremendous clinical relevance, the anatomy of that, to the anatomy of fasciotomy, which I'll discuss later. The lower thickening of the deep fascia, as I've already mentioned, is the superior extensor retinaculum. And it's a point of importance here regarding the site of the synovial sheaths, which is relevant clinically in suppurative tenosynovitis, usually from... Uh, external injury. And the synovial sheath of the tibialis anterior generally starts just above this superior extensor retinaculum and it extends to the inferior extensor retinaculum and divides into two limbs. There's then a sort of common sheath that includes the extensor digitorum longus um, and uh, the um, perineus tertius, and that starts a little lower, just above the malleoli, down to the base of the fifth metatarsal. Fibularis tertius is actually a significant little muscle on the extensor surface of the foot, since the muscle goes into spasm if the foot is caught. Uh, usually it's trapped in a little you know, pothole or something, and then your leg goes into an extensor spasm with the foot being held in position and a sudden spasm of the perineus tertius, and that causes an avulsion distraction fracture of the base of the fifth metatarsal. The third sheath is for the extensor haliosus longus, and it too begins pretty distally just below that common sheath and it extends down to the base of the first metatarsal. And if you can get access, for example, to Grant's anatomy, that's very nicely demonstrated if you're looking at the exact position of these synovial sheaths. I thought we should mention that firstly because it's got some clinical relevance, as I've said, in suppurative um, <coughs> tenosynovitis. So we then get on to the muscles of the extensor compartment, that's the tibialis anterior. It's not particularly wide muscle, it arises from the concavity of the upper two-thirds of that part of the tibia laterally to that subcutaneous border, and also 
not surprisingly, from the adjacent interosseous membrane. And it is in its upper aspect pierced by a nerve called the recurrent, uh, uh, by an artery, pardon me, called the recurrent branch of the anterior tibial artery. The tendon becomes a fairly smooth, rounder tendon for tibialis anterior, and it runs under both the superior and the inferior extensor retinaculi to be inserted onto the medial aspect of the medial cuneiform and the base of the first metatarsal bone. Now, as I've said in a prior podcast, the insertion here is similar to that on the flexor side of the perineus or fibularis longus, although that inserts a little bit more into the flexor surface of the first metatarsal than it does the medial cuneiform. But this is very important to understand the mechanics of foot movement. It's a bit like the hand and the insertion on the extensor side of the extensor carpi radialis longus and brevis. That's the same insertion on the base of the second and third metacarpals uh, uh, of the flexor um, tendon, which is the flexor carpi radialis. So those tendons act as guy ropes. And in this case, the tendons, as I mentioned before, on the front of the foot, the tibialis anterior, and on the sole, peroneus or fibularis longus on the medial foot, are important because they're inversion, uh, inverting muscles inserting into the same structures. Um, And the tibialis anterior, of course, is therefore a dorsiflexor and and an inverter, and the Perineus longus is a plantar flexor and an inverter. And we understand from this the sort of biomechanics of the foot, which I'll allude to a little later, or perhaps more in the next podcast on the foot. But the complex movements are then very simplified, and they're broken down into inversion, eversion, dorsiflexion, and plantar flexion. The... Muscle tibialis anterior is innervated, of course, by the nerve of the extensor compartment of the leg. That's the deep fibular nerve. But there's also a proprioceptive supply from the recurrent genicular nerve, an L4. Now we move next to the extensor haliasis longus. Um, okay, so there's an extensor haliasis longus because there's also an extensor haliasis brevis, a brevis muscle. And this muscle arises, uh, that is the extensor haliasis longus, from a similar extensor surface of the fibula. If you can get hold of an articulated tibia and fibula to look at here, uh, and also an isolated fibula, but the EHL, the extensor haliasis longus, arises from about the middle two-fourths of the bone, and again, not surprisingly, a bit of the adjacent interosseous membrane. It's got a fairly deep origin emerging, really, between the tibialis anterior and the extensor digitorum longus, so that it's a bit like in the upper limb, the extensor pollicis longus or the abductor pollicis longus muscle. These muscles arise from the depths of the forearm and then run forwards to the, uh, uh, to the thumb, This particular one rises again from the depths of the um, extensor surface of the leg, 
dorsal surface of the leg and then runs to the great toe. Very similar. And the extensor hallius, as long as, as I've said, picks up a synovial sheath at the inferior retinaculum and the tendon is inserted into the distal phalanx of the great toe. And it too, of course, is supplied by the nerve of the extensor compartment, the deep fibular nerve. We're left with the extensor digitorum longus that arises from the fibula a little bit more laterally, a little bit more extensively, maybe three quarters of the anterior fibular surface and therefore not from the interosseous membrane. But the origin of this muscle also runs across the front of the superior tibiofibular joint. So it's kind of like a little curved arc that runs across there. So therefore it has a little bit of tibial origin and it also has some origin from the deep fascia, by which I mean that the muscle is very adherent here. And it runs out as four tendons which are held down by the inferior extensor retinaculum, where with the perineus tertius, it, or fibularis tertius, it picks up a common, as I've said, synovial sheath. The point here is that the extensor expansion and the insertion on the foot is actually pretty identical with that of the hand, that kind of three-slip approach where it's central to the middle phalanx and two lateral distal phalangeal attachments. And the support of the lumbricals and the interossei on the different sides at different levels is again pretty similar. And of course, the muscle, the extensor digitorum, is innervated by the deep fibular nerve. We live with perineus or fibularis tertius as well. The origin of that muscle is actually, not surprisingly, just over the lower third of the fibula, below the origin of the extensor digitorum longus. So there's some similarities with the way the extensors of the forearm take their origin, like extensor indices below the extensor digitorum communis as well. So it's a little bit like that in the upper limb. Uh, below perhaps the extensor pollicis longus, as I've said. And it's in a common sheath with the extensor digitorum longus, the perineus tertius inserting into the base of the fifth metatarsal. As I've said, if the foot gets locked into a pothole, then the sudden extensor spasm of the muscle is the thing that creates the avulsion fracture of that piece of bone. So that's why it's clinically relevant. The compartment nerve is, of course, as I've said, the deep fibular nerve, which begins in the fibularis longus, and it winds around the fibular neck under the cover of the extensor digitorum longus muscle. It joins the anterior tibial vessels, the artery and its venae comitantes on the lateral side, under the tibialis anterior, and it lies, as we've said, on the interosseous membrane. In the upper leg, it lies between the two important muscles, the tibialis anterior and the extensor digitorum longus. But lower down, the extensor hallucis longus runs on it as it runs across to the great toe. Uh, the nerve is a mixed nerve. Um, it is sensate to the tibial periosteum. And it continues over the front of the foot to then be the cutaneous supply between the great and second toes. And we remember that the deep perineal nerve or the deep fibular nerve supplies that little web space between the great and second toes. On the dorsal foot, it's lateral to the dorsalis pedis artery. 
and like it's lateral to the anterior tibial. And it sends a little branch under the extensor digitorum brevis on the front of the dorsum of the foot to innervate that muscle, as well as the periosteum of those little metatarsophalangeal joints. And sometimes it can also supply the first dorsal interosseous muscle as a variation that's normally uh, supplied by the, um, uh, by the lateral plantar nerve. The other structure here, of course, is the anterior tibial artery. And that's important because the vascular surgeon occasionally needs to perform a femoroanterior tibial bypass. We know a lot about this artery. It sits on the interosseous membrane, as I've mentioned before. It runs between the malleoli as the dorsalis pedis artery. So it's a point where we try and feel for pulsation on the dorsum of the foot. It has its own venae comitantes. The tibialis anterior is medial, the extensor digitorum and peronaeus tertius are lateral, the extensor halius longus crosses it from lateral to medial. Now, if we run ahead a little to the front of the foot, we see that the dorsalis pedis artery runs between the great and second toes to run deeply and then join the termination of the lateral plantar artery to communicate with the single plantar arch deeply. The pulsation that we normally feel clinically is felt a little lateral to the extensor halius longus. You can get the patient to extend the great toe and then running between the toes or slightly proximally, you can feel pulsation. And there can be a variation here where a normal anastomosis occurs usually with a perforating peroneal artery near the lateral malleolus. That's important because sometimes the peroneal artery can replace the dorsalis pedis or one is diseased and the other isn't. And that lateral connection between the peroneal artery, which I'll describe later, around the lateral malleolus creates a specific lateral tarsal anastomotic collateral network. In some, that actually replaces the dorsalis. There isn't a formal dorsalis. And that's relevant also um, to know that from angiography. In some cases that are, say, a severe diabetic and requires a femorodistal bypass. The normal dorsalis pedis, we don't tend to discuss it much, but it has several branches to remind one. A lateral tarsal artery, which supplies the lateral tarsus and the extensor digitorum brevis muscle running under that muscle. And typically there's also an arcuate artery which runs under the tendons of the extensor digitorum longus and that gives off dorsal metatarsal arteries that join at the cleft that plantar arch I was speaking of and the plantar metatarsal arteries. There are usually some connecting little perforators there. Um, we can just drift down, I think, to the extensor surface of the foot briefly. The cutaneous nerve supply is actually, as we know, the superficial fibular nerve, and there's some homology with the superficial radial nerve in the upper limb. The rest is assisted, as we've said, by the deep fibular nerve, and on the medial side, there's a bit of the saphenous nerve down to the bunion area. On the lateral side, the sural nerve contributes to a bit of nerve supply on the foot. So that the foot that has been dragged out 
has some of its higher nerves, like the femoral nerve and the sural nerve, actually contributing to the medial and lateral sides. You don't have that in the upper limb. The venous drainage is medially conflating as the great saphenous vein and laterally as the small saphenous vein. And these form from the dorsal venous arch and from the metatarsal vein. So therefore the superficial fibular nerve has a medial branch supplying the medial great toe and a lateral branch which then supplies both the sides of the second toe cleft. Don't forget that the lateral branch of this nerve is the cleft of the third to fourth toe clefts. So you've got the bit between the great and the second toes of course supplied by the deep fibular nerve. And the rest of it's kind of supplied by the superficial fibular nerve. We have an inferior extensor retinaculum. I mentioned these uh, very briefly, but to go into a bit more detail, that has a calcanean attachment laterally, and then it has a kind of split medial stem, the upper end of which is going to the medial malleolus, and the inferior stem, which goes down to the deep fascia and attaches to part, part of the plantar aponeurosis of the foot. There is in the dorsum of the foot a unique muscle with no real homologous equivalent in the hand, and that's the muscle we've briefly mentioned before, the extensor digitorum brevis. This has a calcanean origin, and it's adherent to the retinaculum, sort of fleshy muscle which forms ancillary tendons which go to the base of the proximal phalanges. So the one to the great toe is actually sufficiently separate that some people call that an extensor haliusus brevis. So as I've said, to distinguish it from the extensor haliusus longus. We mentioned that before. And of course, like the thumb, the great toe doesn't have a typical dorsal extensor expansion which exists on the other toes. So everything we learnt from the upper limb is then translatable here to the lower limb, with these little caveats that I've mentioned. On the other toes, these pass deep to the extensor digitorum longus, that is the extensor digitorum brevis components. They're part of the complexity of the extensor expansion, but very similar, as I've said, to the fingers. And this too is supplied or innovated, the extensor digitorum brevis, by the deep fibular nerve at S1-2. And I think their job is probably to biomechanically assist in extension of the toes uh, as the foot takes off, running, climbing, getting upstairs, that sort of thing. It kind of pulls these a little bit taut, um, very similar to something we mentioned uh, on another podcast, uh, which is like the halyard of a mainsail. It just pulls that, that bit uh, taught and increases its efficiency. I think that we need to move on to the perineal compartment of the leg because it's a separate compartment. We don't think about it that much. It's uh, attached to the perineal surface of the fibula so that it's bounded by the anterior and posterior intermuscular septum. I'll return to this shortly because it's of great surgical importance in lower limb fasciotomy. This compartment contains the perineus or fibularis longus 
and the peroneus or fibularis brevis muscles and houses, if you like, the superficial peroneal nerve or fibular nerve. The blood supply comes from the peroneal or deep peroneal artery. As these pierce, the flexor hallucis longus and the posterior intermuscular septum. Now, the peroneus longus arises from a very narrow strip on the lateral surface of the fibula, as you might expect, about its upper two-thirds. And the origin, importantly, as we recall, runs across the front of the superior tibia fibula joint. So, therefore, it has a small origin attachment to the upper lateral tibial condyle. Peroneus brevis arises, therefore, from the lower third, or sometimes even half of the fibula, more really the middle third of the bone, but it has an origin that's a small way in front of the peroneus longus. And that too is important because that's how the muscles align and remain in their alignment. Now, the flat, rather broad tendon of the peroneus or fibularis brevis lies just behind the lateral malleus. The tendon of the peroneus or fibularis longus is narrower and it snugs on top of the peroneus brevis, so that it's not in contact with the malleolus. And these tendons pass across a small bump on the lateral surface of the calcaneus, which you can see if you've got one, which is called the peroneal trochlea, with the peroneus brevis passing above the trochlea uh, and the peroneus longus behind. Peroneus brevis, as we know, is inserted into the base of the tubicle, the so-called styloid process of the fifth metatarsal, and is the cause of a spastic contraction, as I've mentioned before, that can also lead to an avulsion fracture. The peroneus longus, which is quite rounded here, runs obviously quite deep through the sole of the foot. It's across a distinct groove in the cuboid bone, like a big tunnel groove, and it possesses a sesamoid fibre cartilage, the so-called os peroneum, which can occasionally be a source of chronic foot pain. The peroneus longus tendon is inserted, as we mentioned already, into the base of the first metatarsal and the medial cuneiform. So I've mentioned before to reinforce that the insertion mirrors that of the tibialis anterior. Now, if you're looking at a prosected specimen or a plastinate, then these two tendons are bound down by the peroneal retinaculum. But there's a superior peroneal retinaculum, which extends from the tip of the lateral malleolus to the calcaneus, and there's an inferior peroneal retinaculum, which is a little way distant at the level of the peroneal trochlea. So regarding this retinaculum, its upper part is almost continuous with the stem of that Y-shaped inferior extensor retinaculum which I discussed before. What's interesting here is that the peroneus brevis and the peroneus longus are enclosed in a common synovial sheath from just above the lateral malleus going down to about the level of the peroneal trochlea. So it's not very long but from there then the synovial sheath splits and individually runs down each tendon separately and that's how it should be and should be relatively easy therefore to remember if you think about all those things you just listen to that tape again and you'll get the appearance of it or listen to it as you're looking through a book or have a prosecting specimen it actually becomes really something that sticks in the head
Both of these muscles are innervated by the superficial peroneal nerve and both are everters of the foot. The peroneus longus contributes, of course, to the lateral longitudinal foot arch. It's something we'll discuss um, in another podcast. And the transverse foot arch as well. And it's also a plantar flexor. You can see if you look at the foot that the line of pull of the peroneus longus laterally located and then swinging medially across the sole actually deepens the lateral longitudinal foot arch. You mightn't think that's the case, but that's the way it kind of biomechanically functions. The superficial peroneal nerve commences, as we know, in the substance of peroneus longus. It pierces the deep fascia halfway in the leg, divides into a medial and lateral branch, the medial one dividing further to supply the medial surface of the great toe and the sides of the second toe, the second cleft, and the lateral one then supplies the third and fourth clefts. The lateral foot, as we recall, is innervated by the sural nerve, the medial side, at least the bunion by the saphenous nerve. The first cleft is supplied by the deep peroneal nerve. So here again we can note a difference between the hand and the foot, but I'm just reiterating these things because they're so commonly asked in exams, tell me a little bit about the cutaneous innervation of the dorsum of the foot. I think we can turn now to the posterior compartment of the leg, the calf. Firstly, the skin is innervated by the termination of the posterior femoral cutaneous nerve, below which we then have the sural nerve and the peroneal communicating nerves. That's from the tibial and the common peroneal or fibula, respectively. And it's really a supply to the back and the lateral side of the calf down to the malleolus. And then, of course, you've got the saphenous nerve medially. We, of course, have the beginnings of the short saphenous vein here on the medial side, bridging across the medial three tendons, which is the flexor hallucis longus, the flexor digitorum longus, and the tibialis posterior, is the flexor retinaculum. And we typically, in the calf, of course, divide the muscles into superficial and deep. The superficials include the gastrocnemii, medial and lateral heads, the plantaris, if it's present, and the soleus, and they all converge down onto the tendo-Achilles. And then the deep muscles include the popliteus and the three or four mentioned muscles, so-called from front to back behind the medial malleolus, under the flexor retinaculum, Tom, Dick and Harry. Tom standing for tibialis posterior, Dick for flexor digitorum longus, and Harry for flexor hallucis longus. The nerve of the posterior compartment is, of course, the tibial nerve, and the artery is the posterior tibial artery. Now, I think we should have a word about something here before we... Uh, continue on to talk about these individual muscles, their origins and insertions and so on. And that is really the fascia and the relevance for a fasciotomy in the leg. It's got to have clinical relevance if we're going to talk about anatomy. Now, fasciotomy is required with raised intramuscular pressure. If it's being measured or monitored, typically after a lower limb injury, or a vascular reconstruction, particularly a distal femorotibial bypass. 
and so as to ensure enough venous drainage and hence arterial supply to the muscles. Usually, one performs a long split of the fascia anteriorly to decompress the extensor compartment, and the medial one is designed to decompress both the superficial and deep flexor compartments. Now, one can imagine that looking at the cross-section of the leg, that it's actually theoretically possible to decompress all the compartments in the way I've defined them, including the peroneal compartment, by actually excising the middle half of the fibula to which all of the intermuscular septa attach. Now, I don't, I must say, know anyone who does this as a fasciotomy. I've asked many orthopaedic, vascular and trauma surgeons. But my point is, if we understand the anatomy, it is possible. And it also has the potential side effect, actually, of injuring the perineal artery, which hugs the undersurface of the fibula directly on bone at that level. Now, I appreciate there are single incision fasciotomy techniques, posterolateral, for example, so that an incision is made in the posterior lateral and anterior de compartment, decompressing the posterior compartment via the lateral intermuscular septum. But so usually in a fasciotomy, we've got a, a lateral or extensor incision and a medial incision, which then decompresses the superficial and deep components. And the lateral one is designed to decompress the extensor and perineal compartments. But in theory, uh, because all the intermuscular septa attach um, to the interosseous uh, part of the fibula, an excision of the middle third of the fibula could decompress every compartment, but nobody really does it. I want to mention this because it's relevant to look at the anatomy and another thing you could do is look at a cross-section of a leg, try and compare that to a schematic cross-section which you can find, for example, on Google Images. And they're useful to look at a schematic cross-section of the leg which assists you in understanding how to anatomically do a baloney amputation, which I'll go through a little bit later on um, in this podcast. Now, the next area that uh, we're talking about uh, is the superficial calf musculature. We've already gone through the, the overlapping cutaneous innovation here. Centrally, of course, is the termination to remind one of the posterior femoral cutaneous nerve. There's the sural from the tibial nerve and the perineal communicating from the common perineal wrapping around the medial and lateral leg and the saphenous nerve over the medial malleolus. There is, of course, in this region the short saphenous vein already mentioned draining laterally with the sural nerve. The deep fascia specialises, as we know, to form the popliteal fascia. It links to the different calf compartments, flexor and perineal, and specialises out as the flexor retinaculum. The gastric nemius has a lateral head that has an epiphyseal origin below the line of the adductor tubercle, and the medial head, which is a slightly broader origin with the plantaris arising from the femoral shaft, is a demonstrable smooth pit above the origin of the popliteus on the lateral epicondyle, which you can check out pretty easily. And so the lateral epicondyle is sort of 
really in effect between these two pits, one for the popliteus, one for the lateral head of gastrocnemius. And a few muscle fibres can arise above from the shaft and the supracondylar ridge, but not really by much. The medial head arises from the medial epicondyle, and it's a fair bit of the popliteal surface of the femoral condyle. Last actually describes this upward origin extension as a postnatal event. The medial head, as anyone looking at calves can tell, is longer than the lateral head, and the undersurface of the aponeurosis um, belongs with that of the deep soleus. Medially, the slender, flat, thin tendon of the plantaris intercedes. There's a bursa that medially communicates with the knee joint and also that of the semimembranosus bursa. Of course, the whole becomes inferiorly the tendo Achilles with a separate bursa above the medial facet on the posterior calcaneum. The plantaris, which we discussed with the variation of the palmaris longus in the upper limb, the plantaris in its variations, again, is a vestigial muscle with a central belly as part of its phylogenetic degeneration that arises laterally, and it runs deep to the medial head of gastrocnemius, and it has a separable, separate calcanean insertion. Uh, my anatomy boss, Quentin Fogg, wrote a nice little article on plantaris variations in 2008 where he found about half of the cadavers examined were the standard with a 13% rate of absence. And variations were about sort of interdigitations with the lateral gastrocnemius head or there were patellar fascial connections so that it functionally supports the lateral gastroc and it supports the patellofemoral dynamics. The soleus is, I guess, the homologue of the flexor digitorum superficialis or flexor digitorum sublimus in the forearm. Of course, the soleus is multi-pinnate because it has a different stance function. Some regard its continuation, if you like, as the flexor digitorum brevis in the sole, so it's only interrupted by uh, really the calcaneum. The soleus arises from the tibia and the fibula with a tibial predominance. And you think of the upper quarter, indeed even a bit of the head of the fibula, like a big teardrop, and then the soleal line on the tibia, on the back of the tibia, which you can easily see, and a bit of the so-called popliteus fascia above, and the posterior thin strip of the middle third of the posterior tibia, so it's a bit more extensive than just the soleal line, about a hand's breadth actually below that soleal line, if you will. So it's got a bigger tibial origin than you think of. And like the flexor digitorum superficialis in the forearm, the soleus has a fibrous arch between the two bones, which covers the popliteal vessels, in this case, and the tibial nerve. It looks like a bit of a slab of salmon, a kind of fascial band in front of it and behind it. The muscle is, of course, filled with a soleal venous plexus and a discrete soleal venous pump. Now, these muscles are innervated by the tibial nerve with branches to each head arising in the popliteal fossa. And the soleus typically receives a high and a low branch, muscle 
The group is a powerful anti-gravity muscle maintaining balance and that assists in propulsion and also plantar flexion of the ankle, the kind of takeoff effect. And these act in tandem, the soleus initiating and the gastrox maintaining, really, propulsion. When it comes to the deep muscles, these include the muscles that we notice at the flexor retinaculum, the flexor digitorum longus, the flexor halicis longus, and the tibialis posterior. To repeat, the flexor digitorum longus runs superficially to the others, and at the retinaculum it is Tom, Dick and Harry, tibialis posterior, flexor digitorum longus, flexor halicis longus from front to back. Now, flexor digitorum longus arises as a fleshy origin from the area below the back of the ciliar line, as you'd expect, for about half the length of the bone. Maybe there's a slip of fibula. That's a bit debated uh, because that area is maybe an aponeurotic attachment rather than a muscular attachment. So for all intents and purposes, the area below the uh, ciliar line on the back of the tibia and the tendon slopes across the tibialis posterior and then passes under the retinaculum to run over the flexor halicis longus to the centre of the foot. And it divides into four tendons, the medial two of which are supplemented in the midfoot by slips from the flexor halicis longus. We'll get into the mechanics of it in the next podcast, but the flexor halicis longus, as we shall see when we discuss the foot, becomes a very central stabilising muscle that supports the medial longitudinal foot arch and stance. Anyway, these four tendons of the flexor digitorum longus also receive slips from that unusual, uniquely foot muscle, the flexor accessorius, or what some people call the quadratus plantae. And these tendons run to the distal phalanges may perforate the tendons of the flexor digitorum brevis and also are the origins of the lumbricals. So there's great homology in that basic structure with the flexor digitorum profundus structure in the upper limb. The way the tendons insert into the distal phalanges and split uh, around uh, one another and also uh, the support by the lumbricals and interossei into the extensor expansions. These are all similar components of the way um, the foot and hand have homology, the lumbrical origins from the uh, flexor digitorum longus, very similar to the lumbrical origins from the flexor digitorum profundus of the upper limb. Flexor halicis longus, as I've said, is the critical bulky muscle of the leg and it attaches to the middle half of the back of the fibula and it lies alongside the flexor digitorum longus. It's just lateral and a bit of the lower interosseous membrane. The tendon of flexor halicis longus runs down as what we call beef to heel. So it's very similar to the flexor pollicis longus in the upper limb if you're identifying which muscle is which identification of a wrist window or an ankle window. In this case, this is also muscle rather than tendon, so-called beef to heel. And that's 
I have verted the fleets for Halios as long as under the sustentaculum tali, and that means that it forms a kind of bowstring to the distal phalanx of the great toe. It's run round variously strung in that way. Of course, in the sole, it's crossed by the flexor digitorum longus, as I've said, gives a strong slip, that's the flexor hallucis longus, to the medial two flexor digitorum longus tendons. Deep to the flexor hallucis longus is the perineal artery, lying, as I've said before, very close to the fibula itself. And one approach to the perineal artery is actually very similar to the fasciotomy approach I mentioned, which isn't done, but that's excision of the middle third of the fibula. Uh, of course, one runs the risk, obviously, of danger to the perineal artery because it's extremely close to the periosteum um, deeply. The tibialis posterior originates from the interosseous membrane and the adjoining bits of both bones. Basically, it's squeezed between the flexor digitorum longus on the tibia and the flexor hallucis longus on the fibula, forming a kind of round attachment to the bone. It's the most medial tendon, as I've said, under the medial malleolus, and it runs over the sustentaculum tali to be inserted into the tuberosity of the navicula. It really isn't correct to say, as many of the textbooks say, that the tibialis posterior inserts into every tarsal bone except the talus. I get what people mean about that, but it's more correct to say that these are extensions beyond its insertion into the navicular. These are extensions that are in, in effect really true ligaments. The tibialis posterior is vascularized largely via the perineal artery, but there's also a supply from the posterior tibial artery and the nutrient arteries. And as we know already, the biomechanics of the ankle movements, it's a plantar flexor and an inverter. Now, we can comment here a little bit, I think, on the posterior tibial artery. That starts effectively at the lower end of the popliteus as the popliteal artery passes forwards onto the interosseous membrane and then becomes the anterior tibial artery and the straighter posterior tibial artery. The anterior tibial has a kind of right angle takeoff. Um, the posterior tibial is subsilious uh, um, uh, and it runs under the fibrous arch, very much like the median nerve running under the origin of the flexor digitorum superficialis in the upper limb. So it's subsilial is what I want to say. That's the word I wanted to say. And then it runs on the aponeurotic connection of the flexor digitorum longus a little laterally, and therefore it's running, really, the posterior tibial artery between the flexor digitorum longus and the flexor hallucis longus. And that's relevant in a below-knee amputation, as I've mentioned. It passes under the flexor retinaculum in this position. We're higher than the split in the tibial nerve. The artery divides into a medial plantar artery and a lateral plantar artery. So that's relatively high up. It's higher than the split in the tibial nerve, which becomes the medial and lateral plantar nerves. And that is uh, the point, really, where one clinically feels for its pulsation uh, as the posterior tibial artery and recording that in vascular cases and diabetic foot and so on. 
Now, the blood supply of the whole area we're considering includes, therefore, the nutrient artery running between the tibialis posterior and the flexor helicis longus. There are a lot of muscular branches here to the soleus. This is from the posterior tibial and down to the level of the tendo Achilles and skin. The perineal artery, or perhaps now fibular artery, runs from the posterior tibial artery underneath the substance of the flexor hallucis longus. And these muscular branches actually run around the fibula into the substance of the perineus or fibularis longus. And that also gives a nutrient fibular artery. So there's a prominent perforating branch of this perineal artery, which I briefly mentioned earlier, and that perforates the interosseous membrane and becomes, as we recall, part of the extensor aspect of the foot. And there's also a lateral calcanine branch here, but it ramifies over the lateral aspect of the foot, and that forms an important anastomosis coming from the lateral part of the foot to join the dorsalis pedis. As I mentioned, sometimes this occasionally even replaces the dorsalis pedis, but it's an important collateral network between the perineal artery and the anterior tibial artery. The other thing we have to talk about is the tibial nerve, and that also needs a little bit of explanation. Here it runs straight down, really, in the midline, in the calf with the posterior tibial artery. Initially it lies lateral to that artery, but it then runs deeply uh, when the perineal branch has been given off, that perineal artery, so that it then lies medial to the nerve. And the nerve, of course, is dividing lower down than the artery, as I mentioned before, into a medial plantar nerve and a lateral plantar nerve. Uh, the tibial nerve is a mixed nerve, obviously innervating the deep calf muscles, the soleus, the flexor digitorum longus, the flexor hallucis longus, the tibialis posterior. I'm trying to reinforce all this, obviously, but also, as I've said, as a mixed nerve, it's got cutaneous branches, it has some uh, prominent median calcane medial calcanean nerves, which innovate the sort of weight-bearing aspect of the heel. That's important in people who've got pressure sores in that region, an important point also in the diabetic foot where there's combined microvascular disease and peripheral neuropathy. Now, one final point to mention, which I kept talking about, uh, is now knowing the anatomy of the leg, we can better appreciate the conduct of a baloney amputation or a BKA from a practical, relatively bloodless perspective. I mean, it's often done in people who've got diabetic macro and microvascular disease. And so therefore we avoid cautery, we avoid um, those kind of things which can interfere with the blood supply, very tenuous blood supply sometimes to the flaps. Now, whereas an AKA is managed with a large equal fish mouth incision, the traditional BKA has a long posterior myocutaneous flaps, uh, flap. There are equal flap uh, examples and other flaps that can be used, but we won't go into them. The standard one is the long posterior myocutaneous flap based on the posterior tibial vessels. You should mark on the skin with a marker the place of tibial transection which is a hand's breadth below the tibial tuberosity, and that's including the thumb. I like to make the incision in the skin about two centimetres below that point 
so that there's no pressure by bone anteriorly on the wound later on. Get a tape measure out, which is one of those, you know, not the, the, the plastic ones, but the one that um, you can wind up uh, around your finger. Uh, that's uh, not one of those metal ones, but that allows you to run it around the leg. And once you do that, there's many different ways of doing this, but I use the circumference of the limb at the skin transection point. And some people have really bulky limbs and some have very thin limbs. But you then use half of that circumference to mark the medial and lateral markings of the incision. Some use a two-thirds, one-third rule. Anteriorly, the incision is about two centimetres medial to the tibia, but two-thirds of the circumference is the horizontal part of the amputation with one-third as the length of the flap. I personally don't think that's enough. So I must confess I ensure that there's always a long posterior flap which you can then trim later on if you need to. But given that sometimes the skin doesn't look that healthy where you normally intend to make an incision, particularly posteriorly. But my flap is actually posteriorly measured at about two and a half times the length of the anterior flap. Uh, I must say I recall quite a number of cases. There was one case that I particularly remember of a man who fell asleep in an ice bath with a frostbitten leg and that that worked really satisfactorily even though the skin was very edematous and pale at that point. Okay so you start with that and you find the great saphenous vein that's the start of the baloney amputation if you're being asked to buy it to talk about baloney amputation it at least sounds as though you've done one or seen one. So you start with a ligation of that Medially, you ligate it, then you extend your incision across the tibial periosteum and you incise the fascia over the extensor compartment of the leg, which we've spoken about in the manner we've defined. And I don't use cautery at all, particularly if the case is a vascular or a diabetic vascular case. Pass your finger then under the extensor muscle, the tibialis anterior, and you can pass your finger around very easily underneath that. It doesn't really matter how big the leg is. And you cut that with a knife and you'll see that beneath that is the anterior tibial artery and laterally the deep fibular nerve, both of which are sitting on the interosseous membrane. Ligate one and divide the other. And next I clear the perineae off the fibula, staying close to the bone so that you don't injure the common fibular nerve. You don't have to actually see that common fibular nerve, in my opinion. There's some people who go looking for that. It may lead to a higher risk, actually, paradoxically, of neuroma or post-amputation pain. I just stick close to the fibula so that you're pushing that tissue away. Pass a gilet saw around with your finger very close to the bone and attach the hooks of those and you transect the upper fibula in a kind of lateral pulling motion. There's not much fibula in most people, and the cut should be a good three centimetres above the proposed level of the tibial transection. Now then make an angled cut into the half uh, of the tibia, and then run flat across that so that it becomes a beveled cup, uh, cut. Uh, in its entirety, the end of the tibia is then beveled. I don't strip the periosteum, as there is blood supply here, and if it's heavily stripped, it can form a fibrous mass or even a sequestrum of bone. Rasp the edges gently so that they're nice and soft, and not excessively uh, to reduce extrusion into the anterior wound, and don't use bone wax.
because it's a foreign body that can extrude through the wound. The limb is now only held by its fleshy gastric nemius and soleus bed, and I cut that down at the lower margin of the distal posterior flap so that the limb is effectively removed by a gentle stripping. And there are usually some small bleeding veins to ligate here, along with a visible posterior tibulatory. You don't always see that. And uh, you just pull that tissue gently off in front of the posterior flap. Use a ReadyVac drain, which is taped but not sutured into place, so you can remove it without disturbing the whole dressing. And the soleal fascia is closed against the front deep fascia. The skin is closed using straight proline needles as vertical mattress sutures without grasping the skin at all. Okay, so we're finally there at the end of this. Uh, and the next one we're going to consider the fibula and the tibia. And we'll move on to the foot and then we have to tackle the tarsus. Maybe we'll have one of a neurological overview before the lower limb quiz. So we still need to plug on uh, with quite a bit yet. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll see you next time.